A Canadian journalist infiltrates an international network of violent extremists. They don't care who they maim or hurt or kill. White supremacists who want to spark a race war and incite the collapse of society. Embrace the chaos! And from its ashes, a new world shall rise to victory, white man! I'm Michelle Shepard, and I'll take you inside this movement to learn where it came from and where it's headed next. White Hot Hate, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It was awful. There was basically zero visibility. We did no trips that night. We did three during the day, but even the three during the day were tough. Snowdrifts could build up so rapidly and you wouldn't see them. You don't want to be out on those nights. Carson Hoy is a cab driver in Emerson, Manitoba, and he's talking about a January night in 2022, the night the Patel family set off on foot to cross the border from Canada into the United States. Jagdish, his wife Vishali, their 11-year-old daughter Vihanji, and three-year-old son Darmik were told to walk through a field with the promise of a better life waiting on the other side, but the family never made it. They froze to death, and their story has led to an international investigation. Stephen D'Souza is with the Fifth Estate. He first brought us the Patel story in 2022, and he's back today with an update. Stephen, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Remind us what we know about this family. This was a normal middle-class family from the Indian state of Gujarat, from a village called Dengucha. Jagdish was a teacher, uh, worked for his brother's clothing business as well, and they seemed to live a comfortable life. But Something in them drew them to the United States. They wanted to leave that behind, and they wanted to bring their family to the United States. They came to Canada, but the final destination was the United States. What was going on there? Yeah, a lot of people would say, why not just stay in Canada? But in the village, in that part of India, there's a large societal draw. There's a lot of pressure to to move to the United States. Thousands have done it before in decades past, some legally, some illegally. And they post photos of their lifestyle. They send money back to the villages. And this leads to a large cachet around the American dream. And so people see that and they and they want that. They want that better opportunity for their children. And then, of course, the legal route is so difficult because it could take decades for people to get citizenship. And so they turn to smugglers who offer what they say is an easy path. And it just costs, it costs money, but it could cost upwards of, you know, one, one migrant uh, in this case says that he spent $100,000 wow. to make the journey. What happened? I mean, th- this story was was awful for a number of reasons, including the weather that 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 night, um, the fact that this young family with these young children crossed and didn't make it through that field. What happened in the aftermath of their deaths? There was a lot of questions. Um, mostly, you know, who was responsible? That was the biggest question, and there was not a lot really happened afterwards. There was one arrest by U.S. Border Patrol on the other side, a man named Steve Shand who was alleged to have been driving a vehicle to pick up the migrants when they made it to the other side. And then the RCMP, who's leading the investigation from Winnipeg, we're trying to piece together the family's timeline, how they got from the Toronto area to Manitoba. We still don't have a clear picture of that. And we know that they were basically moved around the Toronto area through Mississauga, Welland, Ontario, and then ended up at the border. But who and how they got there was still a mystery. Have there been any arrests into this? No arrests in Canada uh, to date. Around the one-year anniversary, so around this time last year, there were three arrests in India, and there were three men that Indian police allege were part of the Indian side of the smuggling network. Mm. And that was when a key piece of information came out. They named suspects in Canada that they said were part of the of the smuggling network that helped facilitate the family's journey and the uh, some other migrants who crossed at the same time helped facilitate their journey. And at the time, we got some names, but that's all we got. Two names, Bithu Paji and Fenil Patel. 
and they were accused of transporting the family and other migrants through the through Canada to the border and sending them out into that snowstorm. What do you know about those two people who were named here in Canada? So right away, Bithupaji was a bit of a ghost because that's not a real name. It's not a legal name. It's a nickname. Oh, okay. So we didn't have any more information on that. Fennel Patel, though, is like John Smith. And so again, we had a lot of difficulty at first trying to figure out who he was. But through various information, we got a police report. We got other information from sources in India. We were able to to piece all the breadcrumbs together and eventually find an address just outside of Toronto. Tell me more about that. What did you find out when you got the address? So here's a person that Indian police are accusing of some very serious crimes, culpable homicide, human smuggling. And so we wanted to know if we were looking for the right person, mm. if we if we had found the right person. And so we basically conducted surveillance. We would park out in front of the house and, and watch and see. And what we saw was an individual who seemed to have a very plain, basic routine like anybody else, running errands, taking out the garbage uh, every week. And so at one point, we even followed him in his vehicle to see where he was going. Oh, no, he is going, yeah, he's going left towards the plaza. He's just, we're just uh, in traffic right now. I'm like two or three cars behind him. You know, he's okay. facing some very so serious charges gonna, in India, and we yeah, wanted to know, to he is he still, you know, allegedly responsible for, or doing doing the things that he's he's accused of? And so we we actually were following him for quite a while. Okay, I'm like two, a few cars behind him now. He's still in the right lane, so it looks like he's going to go. But unfortunately lost him, so we never really got information about what he was doing. But, you know, we took photos and we managed to gain enough information from watching him that it seemed that we found the right person. How do you know that you are following the right person? This is the thing. We were always asking ourselves, do we have the right person? And so what we did was we took the information we gathered, including the photos, and we took it back to Indian police, the original uh, officers and investigators who had laid uh, these accusations against Fennel Patel. And they confirmed for us that it was in fact the same individual. And they, they gave us more information that, you know, he was accused of moving the family and some migrants through Canada, and that he was there that night when the family was sent out with apparently just a cell phone and an app saying, if you just walk across the border, then you will find, you know, the dream you're looking for. And not wearing the right clothing for no. a brutally cold winter night. Yeah, the RCMP, uh, Indian police have both pointed out that this is a family that likely had never even seen snow before in their lives. And they were wearing inadequate clothing. And you think about, you know, just packing your kids up in the morning to go to school. Mm. They were traveling with an 11-year-old and a three-year-old. Did you end up, you talk about following this individual, did you end up speaking with him? We attempted to. Once we had confirmation that this was the same person Indian police were looking for, we approached him on his driveway. Fennel, my name's Stephen D'Souza. I'm with CBC News, the Fifth Estate. Indian police are accusing you of driving the Indian family, the Patel family, to the border. Did you drive them to the border, sir? We want to ask you about what happened to the Patel family. He sort of mouthed the words no, the shook his head and turned around and walked back into his home. Indian All the while, I kept you, sort of pressing of him with questions, but we never really got a, a specific answer or any real any response from him. Really. And have you heard from him since? Or We have not, no. Hmm. We've sent letters, we've uh, tr- attempted phone calls, a number of different ways to communicate, but uh, no response from him at all. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.
So I want to bring another person into this conversation and somebody that we spoke with around the time of your initial investigation. Deepak Alawalia is an immigration lawyer. He's worked with migrants who have crossed the U.S.-Canadian border. Deepak, hello to you. Good morning, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back on the program. When you hear this story, um, how common are stories like the Patels in terms of what you know, as I say, as, as somebody who has worked with people who have crossed this border? Well, yeah, that's a great question, Matt. I mean, in terms of uh, being common, there are a lot of families and individuals that make this journey daily. I mean, we're at historic highs if you look at the numbers that CBP or CBSA discusses between the northern border that Canada and the U.S. share. Uh, Unfortunately, incidents like these uh, don't happen uh, very commonly. Of course, uh, this is just a matter of numbers in terms of who gets through safely and who doesn't. And so it's, it's disheartening to see even one family go through this, let alone many more. Stephen talked about the the societal pressure to live abroad. You and I have spoken before about that kind of American dream that would lure people and lure them to to spend a lot of money to try to cross that border. What are the promises that are made from the smugglers? Yeah, there are various uh, degrees of promises that are made. Uh, More money, more opportunities for you to send money back to your parents back home, build some more land, build a home that you otherwise may have never had. And it really comes down to which region or even specifically which country you're you're traveling from. Um, The dangers are never discussed. Unfortunately, what we see is even with a situation like the Patels, uh, you would think that, uh, you know, this travel, this dangerous journey that's made, whether it's you're an Indian national or from any other country, rather, uh, would go down. But like I was alluding to earlier, the numbers are actually at historical highs uh, for it individuals who are trying to cross the border from Canada to the United States. And again, people would be tempted to use that smuggling route because the legal path to U.S. to get a green card, for example, I was going to say U.S. citizenship, but even to get a green card, that that can take years. It can take years. It can take several decades. Uh, it can even take hundreds of years, depending on which category you're trying to apply under and which country you were born in. So the system is broken. That's the best way to put it. The system is broken. And the stakes are high for those individuals who are trying to cross. I mean, if they were to return back to their village in India unsuccessful, what would that mean for them? It would mean death. It would mean death depending on how they were able to procure that money. Many of these individuals you see um, are coming based on uh, persecution they may have faced based on their political opinion, sexual orientation, religious affiliation or belonging to a particular social group. There are obviously individuals who also come just purely for economic reasons, but the underlying kind of um, consensus seems to be that a lot of the individuals that end up coming through these channels have either taken money out for loan or have gotten the money out against their property to you know, someone who's more than happy to lend the money, but if they come back empty-handed and are not able to pay that money back or are not able to pay the interest, then that means danger to their family or the individual. In the United States, how are these smugglers dealt with? So I would have to say in the United States, the, the penalties for human smuggling or, or even trafficking are a lot more severe than you would see in other countries. So, so? for example... Well, the the basic statutory maximum penalty for human smuggling, for example, is at least 10 years. Mm. And so although it is a lot severe, I think what happens in this situation, and Steve and I have talked about this, but um, in the last several years, I would say based on my experience and having done this since 2015, uh, the smugglers have gotten a lot more brazen. 
and they're out in Canada, they're out in the United States. And, you know, we've seen in the case of Fano Patel where he's back and forth between India and Canada. Uh, usually before you would see there was the agents in India, for example, they would speak to their counterparts in, cent- uh, in Central South America. They may have someone in Canada by the border, but they wouldn't actually make that track back and forth. But this is very different in the sense that we're now seeing a Canadian resident who actually lives in Canada, who is facilitating or orchestrating this, but is living out in Canada with his family openly. India wanted to have these people identified and extradited back back to India. Why hasn't that happened? Well, you know, the, the extradition process, um, especially between Canada and, and India, has been rather complicated. I think a very famous case that I like to bring up, which CBC extensively reported on in the past, is the case of Jaswinder Jasikor Sidhu. It was uh, the, the young female originally from British Columbia who married someone in India against her mom and uncle's wishes. She went to India and she was murdered back in the year 2000. And the reason I bring this story up was even though the, the, the alleged killers or the actual killers were arrested shortly after the murder, they very quickly pointed to the fact that it was a murder for hire plot. It was the mom and it was the uncle living in British Columbia who had actually ordered the murder. And despite eyewitness statements or even from witness statements from the murders, murderers themselves, the actual extradition uh, arrest was not given or put out in Canada until t- almost 12 years later mm. after the murder. Murder happens in 2000. Extradition warrants are issued under Canada's Extradition Act in the year 2012. So to answer your question, based on the extradition laws that are provided or you know, when someone is requesting extradition from Canada, there's a you know, three-pronged approach that's done. So there's the authority to proceed, there's the judicial phase, there is a ministerial phase. So... It looks like, based on what has happened before, and you know, the, the I would say the you know the, the case that has been widely popular in Canada, it looks like in this or during this authority to proceed stage, RCMP or you know the international counterpart are talking to each other, but we actually don't know what the movement is because this part of the investigation phase is not public. I think what concerns and should concern the average Canadian citizen or public is that. If it's taking over a decade to do their investigation and someone's dragging their feet and they're not moving things along, especially when there is someone who's actually connecting the two dots and there is a witness saying this is what's happened, then why are we waiting over a decade for someone to act, which gives someone like Mr. Patel here ample freedom and the opportunity to run away. Let me ask you a little bit more about that, because the CBC, the Fifth Estate in particular, spoke with Gary Bird. He's an RCMP sergeant, has worked in homicide as an investigator, working on this family's case in particular. Have a listen to what he said. The fact that the Patel family attempted to cross that evening was completely unnecessary and dangerous. And I believe that the person or persons that facilitated that travel need to be held responsible for that reason. So the RCMP says that those who are responsible need to be held accountable. Could the RCMP have a role in this? Could they charge the smugglers themselves and not deal with, as to your point, that, that long backlog of extradition proceedings? Absolutely. Yeah, the, we have to look at these in two different phases. Whether India wants this individual or these individuals extradited is a, a separate issue versus RCMP actually investigating a crime that occurred on Canadian soil. And they have the individual or the suspect 
on Canadian soil. They need to do their separate investigation and, and actually move forward on whatever they need to do to make sure this person is charged under Canadian laws. We don't need to wait. I mean, of course, Indian officials can give us, uh, they can continue to collaborate and provide RCMP with evidence or further statements that someone may be pr- providing. But we don't need to wait for this extradition process to see it through because ultimately the way it works anyway is even if a crime was occurred or committed here in Canada, Usually what happens is the individual is serving his or her time on Canadian soil or American soil, for example, before they actually are turned over and sent back to India. In the meantime, as you've said, I mean, people are still going to try to use whatever route possible to find that better life. And whether that's, you know, falling prey to smugglers, whether that's signing up for, um, you know, colleges that say they're going to offer them degrees. They may not, but that might be uh, an expedited path to try to get into this country and beyond. What has to change in the system to better protect those vulnerable individuals and those vulnerable families? Well, yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point, Matt. Uh, These sham colleges or sham degrees that are offered or the LMI petitions by employers where they're charging upwards $50,000 to a particular foreign national and then not giving them the job once they get to Canada. I've seen all those cases because those individuals end up running off and coming to America and trying to file asylum because now not only have they spent their life earnings, their parents' life earnings, sometimes their grandparents' life earnings and made this trek, but now they're afraid to go back. So uh, I'm sure you've seen recently the government of Canada has report uh, has indicated that they were going to do a reduction mm-hmm. in the amount of visas that are issued uh, by 35%. And uh, part of what they've said is it's to, uh, to have some sort of relief because there's a lot of pressure on housing and healthcare. Well, you know, as someone who's grown up in Canada, I grew up right outside of Toronto in Brampton. I had to work two or three jobs to support my family and while attending university. And I was barely making ends meet. And I'm talking about over a decade ago. This is back, you know, between 2006 and 2011 when I had to work two jobs just to provide for the family, pay rent, and also save up for college because I wasn't eligible for OSAP, right? So this is me as someone who's raised in Canada from Canada. Mm. I can only imagine a foreign student, international student coming in today with how expensive everything is Canada and with false promises of a particular degree that, or a diploma that does not lead to anything, that does not lead to jobs. So the pressure is all around it. There's, there's a lot of different reasons why this is happening, but we need to make sure that we're actually adequately, one, equipped for anyone coming in, whether it's legal or illegal route. But second, also making sure that we're not letting predators, whether it's an employer or a college or any other institution, take advantage of these individuals, which is part of the issue. Stephen D'Souza uh, from the Fifth Estate has been here with us listening in. Since this family's death, are you aware of any changes that have been made to ensure that those vulnerable families are better protected? From Again, given what Deepak is saying, people are going to want to make this trip. They want mm-hmm. a better life. And so they're going to do extraordinary things to try and find that better life. Is there anything that's better protecting them now? As far as we can tell, no. Uh, nothing's changed. And one thing that some people have pointed out to us is that a lot of the people like in the Patel case and others, they come on tourist visas to Canada. So that gives them a legal means of coming to the country before they make the journey into the U.S. And so some have suggested that that process could be looked at more closely. And then Deepak uh, suggested that the numbers of people crossing from Canada into the U.S. are at record highs. In some areas in Vermont and uh, New York, it's 
upwards of 500% increases over, over previous years. And so this is happening with more and more frequency. From a number of different places around the world. From, the, from a number of different places around the world, uh, from Mexico, especially uh, India, Central and South America as well. And it's, uh, it's a case where, you know, we don't hear about it until something tragic happens. There was a Romanian and Indian family that died crossing the St. Lawrence last March. Just in December, there was a, a woman from Mexico who crossed and died, and she was five months pregnant. And so at this point, it doesn't seem that anything is happening. And when we contact the RCMP about our case, about finding Fennel Patel, we get, we get statements back saying that the investigation is progressing. And when we inquire about any extradition requests, the Department of Justice says that those are confidential state-to-state -state communications. And so we won't hear about any request whether it's even happened or not, until it ends up in the courts. So this is an update, but that would suggest that this is not the end of the story for you. No, I think there's a lot we need, still need to follow. There's a lot of questions about whether or not Fennel Patel will answer for the allegations he's facing in India. Uh, there's a lot of questions about the other people, the other suspect mentioned, this ghost, Bithu Paji, who no one seems to know. There's a lot of questions about just whether or not this family will find justice and, and how, how that, what, what form that will take. And what can be done to protect those who are not this family yet, but yeah. could be in future. Exactly. Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you. And Deepak, thank you very much. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. You as well. Deepak Alawalia is an immigration lawyer based in California. Stephen D'Souza is with the CBC's Fifth Estate. You can watch his story about the Patel family tonight on CBC Television and CBC Gem. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.